0: Hello and welcome to Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest has won the Australian Prime Minister's Literary Award for her fourth book of poems, Drag Down to Unlock or Place an Emergency Call. Her work's been widely anthologized both inside and outside Australia and has been translated into Indonesian, Chinese, Burmese and Italian. Um, Up until very recently, she was the poetry editor of the Canberra Times. Melinda Smith, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me, know It's very exciting to be part of Compulsive Reader Talks today.
0: Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And uh, just for listeners, um, just to situate them, I'd love to have you open the show with a palm.
1: I would be very happy to. Uh, uh, do you have a particular one that you would like to request?
0: Well, I was thinking about maybe the Cento um, Pine.
1: I have that open in front of me right here. So, um, Perfect. I'll just say a little tiny bit about it before I read it. Um, I was part of a project last year. Um, I was only part of it for a month, but there were a lot of other people who were part of it for the entire year. Um, and it was called Project 365 or 365 plus one, or sometimes Project 366. <laughs> um, it was run by the poet Kit Kellen, an online blog Base where people were encouraged to post draft poems um, on a daily basis, and I was just a guest on there for a month, um, and so I posted a poem every day of April in 2016, um, but yeah, some heroic individuals kept going for the entire year, and I um, just in awe of them because having to pass, post a draft every day for a month nearly did for me. <laughs> um, But one of the fabulous things about it was the communal space. And as you know, poetry is a very solitary thing and it was lovely to be part of a community of poets for that month. And everyone was encouraged to read and comment on everyone else's work. And so I got to read some really fabulous draft poems. And uh, I don't know, towards the end of the month, I was running a bit dry on ideas and I thought, well, I'll just make a cento. Um, So a a poem composed of lines of other people's poems. Um, And so I chose a few lines from some of the poems that had already been posted that day, I think it was the 8th of April, and I made um, just a little poem with a strange kind of slightly regretful love atmosphere, I suppose you could call it. Um, And I was also reading War and Peace or rereading War and Peace at that time, so I had this quote from War and Peace I put up at the top of the poem, and the quote is, everything will be forgiven her, for she loved much, and everything will be forgiven him, for he had much fun. Um, And here's the poem. It's called Pine. Light on green needles, our lips meet, a tangerine, a nectarine, an exhaustible well, lying under the pine. We don't remember why this happened. Who has the key? Early morning, blue as bruised cold. The folds of the curtain close their mouths on the light. Knowing which day, by my toughness, as a darkness climbs my arm when putting on a coat. Do you feel me riding in the field of your absence? En mandarin, en nectarine. There is a version of me that's screaming in the hall. This morning has the ears of a foal moving towards midnight. I have to look in, if I want to be found, find my way to the sea.
0: Hmm. I, I just love how coherent that one came out. I mean, <laughs> did you, uh, the, I mean, the form fascinates me anyway, because it's a, a kind of construction that ends up being something entirely different from, you know, where it started because it's a series of lines pulled out of context but then made into a completely new thing did, did you stick strictly to the form or were you tempted to add a little
1: um I, I, every single one of those is actually the exact words in the exact order that they were in the original poems i took them from except the folds of the curtain close their mouths on the light which is not a line from a poem, but um, there were visual artists in the project as well, and that was a picture by Sue Rawlinson, I think, Mm. that was just a picture of a a window with curtains and with light coming through it, and that was my description of the picture. Um, But obviously I tried to make it fit the mood of the rest of the poem when I wrote it. Um, And I I mean, I like um, doing these strange kind of collages and assemblages, but trying to make them... Um, speak with some kind of emotional coherence I think um, that for me is the fun in it and the challenge is to try and get it all so that it feels like it could. all those strangenesses could have been said by one voice um, and I, I think I've said, I've said in another interview about this that I don't know if that's intellectually valid but it feels creatively interesting to me to do that mm-hmm. um, and it's a good way of getting out of my own head and, and playing with other ways of expressing
0: things Yes, I mean do you feel it's kind of freeing in a in a sense, um, to be able to let go, I guess, of you know, this notion of being the creator, this kind of uncreative writing if you like, at the yeah. same time as allowing for you know, you wanted to express something that you need to express, as all poetry does.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I I like it playing with that tension. Mm.
0: Yes, I, I was part of three six six plus one too, um, just for two I noticed. So At the I, was, very I, end. I
1: didn't want to kind of preempt that and say that for the listeners. But um, you were, were you on it for the whole year?
0: No, I only came in towards the end. So um, oh. yes, I stuck it out for the whole year from the point I joined.
1: <laughs> but the point oh, wow. I
0: joined was very late in October, I think.
1: <laughs> Still, that's more than a month. So it my, a little it more. and yeah, I had it seen fine. your name in in various three six six places, and um uh, yeah we when we've um spoken, we've never actually managed to catch up on that um fact that we were both involved in that project at different times, so it's very cool that we're now reading this poem on your podcast
0: yeah that's right and uh, i mean for, for me and i I wonder if it was the same for you this um this idea of being forced to write every day meant that you did have to le- let go for me anyway, I had to let go. Of, you know that sort of sometimes stultifying notion of quality um, and just get it out
1: yeah just get it out, get it down it's a draft, no one is going to make you stand by it, it's just a draft so um, yeah it's, it was a fabulously freeing um, dynamic and, uh, a new kind of uh, refresh for a bit of a creative practice um, and, and yeah, it, it happened at a very good time for me because I was uh, a lot of the ideas in this book were um, coalescing into something, but I hadn't written a lot of the the really key poems in the book and I was postponing writing some of them because I knew they were going to be hard. Um, and Project 366 actually helped me break through on several of them so you know just by making me get a draft up. So I, I'm actually really grateful to it, um, oh. to Kit and to the project for coming along at that time in this book's yeah. gestation.
0: Do you think also the notion of writing poetry or any kind of creative practice as being a practice rather than a kind of endpoint is helpful
1: Oh yes yes no, I am I, um, I, happiest when I'm thinking of what I'm doing as a practice, and it's only the annoying you know existence of things like deadlines. <laughs> The so <laughs> you have to stop noodling with things and actually, you know, put them into some kind of final form and say, oh, that's it, or at least that's it for now. Um, but there's a sense, I, I think, in which um, I like to think of my poems as going on, evolving, even after they've been committed to, you know, a final paper form or a final online form, particularly if you can perform them, you can make them different every time you perform them as well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's all kind of one... Oh, it's all of a piece as far as I'm concerned. I, I love the idea of um, just keeping on doing the work. And, um, you know, there are snapshots of it at various times that are books and poems in magazines and so forth, but the work just continues
0: underneath all of that all the time. Yes. Oh, I love that notion and, and how each reading is a kind of performance and I guess the audience impacts on how those poems sit. There's that, that space between the reader and the, and the
1: listener. Yeah, I feel like you know, if every time someone reads a poem, it's like the you know the poet and the poem and the audience together make a new thing, and it's different because it's, you know the people involved are different every time, mm-hmm. and the space is different, and, you know, the breath and the health of the poet and <laughs> emphasis they give to particular words and stuff—it's different every time, so that's nice. what keeps it from being boring.
0: Yes, the wonderful thing about poetry. So, how did the book come together then, as a you know a fully realised collection? Because it does seem to me to be, um, you know, quite a coherent structure as well in and of itself.
1: Well, I, it's funny actually. It went through a lot. The structure of the book was the thing that gave me. Endless headaches and um, it it went through a lot of different versions with things in different orders and so forth. Um, I mean, I knew from the start that I wanted to do a set of poems on the theme of suicide and that's for readers who haven't um, encountered the book yet or listeners who haven't encountered the book. The second section out of the five sections is a section called Goodbye Cruel and it's on the theme of suicide. So I knew that that would kind of be the emotional heart of the book. And everything else was kind of swirling around that. And then I had a couple of other big-ish projects I was working on. You know, there's a translation project that I worked on um, about uh, a 10th century Persian poetess called Rabia Balki. And I knew I wanted that to be in the book somewhere. But I actually went to a very trusted friend of mine who we'd been commenting on each other's draft poems for years. And I said, here are all the poems... This is the order I have them in at the moment. Please tell me what works and doesn't work about this order. And he helped me kind of uh, reorder things within sections and also change the orders of a couple of sections around. So that Martin Dolan is his name. He's a um, another Canberra poet, and he was very very helpful. So yeah, it took a lot of work to bring it together in uh, the form that it's in at the moment. And. Yeah, every time I look at it, I think, oh, maybe I should have put that poem there. <laughs> but it's kind of done now.
0: Yes, I mean, um, the, the link yeah, suites. For them, better or for worse. That's right. And the, the link suites, they really, like, the poems seem to talk to one another. So each of those link suites seems to have, and maybe it's just by virtue of proximity, but they, they really do seem to um, impact on the meaning of the poem that follows and the poem that, you know, the poems within that section.
1: Yeah, oh, that's good to know. Yeah. I mean, I did, I did order them with a view to having that happen um, and, you know, trying not to have too jarring a change between one type of poem and another type of poem and having them kind of, you know, some of them touch on similar themes or use similar images or even the same words. So, um, yeah, I did think about that a little bit. But, um, you never know if it's actually worked until you get readers telling you <laughs> what they've made of it
0: for sure and i mean because we have we have death is such a an important component of the book um and you bring in dante it's it's hard not to think of that as being kind of the afterlife component not such a happy one perhaps but um uh you know the, the, this notion of the pain of life and then you know this sort of um the the various circles from the inferno
1: yes yes um Dante was obviously a big part of my thinking about the book um, because if you're going to write about suicide, it's, or, or it basically, you know, if you're going to write about anything that's been a deadly sin, <laughs> you, um, you, you end up going to Dante and looking at what he's done and wondering whether there's anything you can add to it at all. Um, and that's kind of, you know, there are a couple of poems that were influenced by Um, Canto 13 um, where he deals with uh, the place where suicides go Um, but that reading of of that um, I've read it in a couple of different translations and I like the Dorothy Sayers translation Um, but that kind of I think got into lots of different parts of the book um, even the bits that weren't about suicide so maybe maybe it's Dante I have to think for any coherence in the rest of it um yeah
0: could, could you read one of
1: those
0: right, yeah. <laughs> could i get you to read we, we that were human once
1: i would love to um, so this is the opening poem that kind of sets the scene for all the poems about suicide um and it's just it refers to you know something that is in Canto for the of the Inferno nowhere um, Dante and Virgil will go to the forest of suicides. And um, one of the most horrifying things of, of how that whole bit of hell has been conceived is that suicides can't speak on their own. The, 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 the kind of ghosts or the shades of the suicides who are there have been transformed into trees. And they're unable to speak unless someone actually snaps a twig or a branch and then their voice can come out along with the sap. Um, which leaks out a little bit like blood but the act of breaking the twig or snapping the branch actually hurts the tree as well and it's kind of very horrifying but also a very interesting metaphor for storytelling and creating narratives um, if you think about it so that's kind of why I thought of it as the opening poem um, you know this is a story that it's going to hurt to tell um, so this is We that were human once, after Dante Inferno, canto 13. Snap me, I will speak from the wound. Let my story leak out, honey red. Become sap, crusting my cursed bark. Mm. So that was um, just a short little one to set the scene and Mm. say that we're going to hear some difficult stories in the next little bit of the book.
0: Yes, and, and yet the, the hearing of them in some odd sort of way, it seems to be healing.
1: That, that was the kind of hope for this section. I mean, a lot of people have said, why would you want to write a set of poems on that theme? Are you okay? Um, and I've said, yes, I am okay. Um, but I have had people in my circle of friends and relatives um Talk about it and I've had one uh, person try twice that I know and that person's still with us. So um, I decided, well, I mean, even at that distance experiencing it, um, that the world of, that opens up around suicide is a very silent world. Mm. you are not allowed to necessarily speak. Frankly, it's, it's particularly difficult to open discussions with the person themselves unless they start talking um, but there's also, you know, when when suicides are reported in the media, you never really the kind of cause of death goes unknown for weeks and weeks, and then they may or may not mention what actually happened. Um, so uh, I just I felt that this silence was an unhealthy silence, and that it, um, it was worthwhile trying to break it a little bit by just lobbing a few words in there. And of course, you know, one tiny little book of poems is not going to change anything, but. That was where I felt I was being led Mm. Um, and, you know, the the topic just basically stood up in my mind and said, write me and wouldn't go away until I had written it. So um, that was how the sequence came about. But I didn't want it to be um, kind of wireistic and I didn't want it to be um, mawkish either. I just wanted it to be, you know, just bearing witness basically and just... Um, being with um, some of these characters um, in their last moments or being with people who've lost um, loved ones to suicide or being with people who've tried to talk people out of it. Mm. It's just, you know, that kind of compassionate bearing of witness was what I was hoping for um, in making the poems.
0: Yes,
1: and And understanding the the
0: pain as well, which is I guess is very helpful.
1: Yes. I mean, that, that's one of the most frustrating things about being in um, a difficulty you can't see a way out of. You first, um, if people keep telling you, I know you feel like you're in a hole, but you're not in a hole, the actual most helpful first step is to say, I, I, I get that you feel that you're in a hole. You know, That hole must feel terrible for you. Um, let's talk a little bit about the hole and let's acknowledge that that's what you're feeling. Um, and that's the first step to kind of moving past it, really, to just say that
0: it's, it's real for that person. Mm. And, and at times Sorry. the writing is, you know, it's, it's exquisitely beautiful too. I mean, it's not just dark. Um, but another aspect of, and I think this is a consistent quality in your work, it's almost a trademark, um, is that the the poems tend to straddle the line between comedy and tragedy. So in many instances it's both at once.
1: Yes, um, I'm not very good at keeping to one flavour. I suppose, (laughs) Um, and I do. uh, So a lot of people don't like that about my work. They find it kind of off-putting or tasteless or or something about my work, and that's fine, you know. Um, But that's that's what I. I'm only I'm writing the poems that I write, and that's kind of how they come out. Um, And so that you know there are. um, that's a quality that I like. I mean, in, in the literature that I read, I like the fact that you know life is like that. There's dark and light mixed in, and I like literature that um, acknowledges that and um, doesn't try and paint it all in one colour. So you know, there's um, for example, I said I was reading War and Peace while I was writing part of this book, and you know, there's there's some hysterically funny and joyous bits in it. it for all that, it's a very dark book, and some horrible things happen in it. Um, and that's what I love about Tolstoy. Is that he has this entire tapestry and all the different threads in it, um, and some of them are dark and some of them are light. And I'm not not saying that I'm in any way um, achieving at the level of Tolstoy, but I'm I'm saying that that's that kind of um, variety and richness is is what I like in literature. So that's what I try and put into um, the poems that I make. Mm. And yet sometimes I might go a little bit too far in one direction or another. Um, you, you just keep uh, keep trying, and very occasionally it works, and sometimes it
0: doesn't. Oh, I think comedy and tragedy always go together. I think at times, anyway. Um, so, can you read? Can you read "Sausage Dog Apocalypse"? <laughs> I love
1: sausage that dog so apocalypse. Much. Yes. This is probably the silliest poem I've ever written. So we're having a very big mood change now. Um, And, uh, you know, when I was writing this poem, I actually, um, I was thinking about the influence of Wikipedia on contemporary life, actually. And there's nothing Wikipedia, there's no reference to Wikipedia in this poem, but I was thinking it's, it's possible in seconds to find out far more than you ever knew about a subject to be pretty certain that most of it is reputable knowledge and to be able to relate, that knowledge to other knowledge so you have another knowledge that's also online and in libraries and so forth um and that that's you know that's a a thing that has not been possible for human minds to do for very long um it's outside you know certain privileged university enclaves and even then it wasn't possible at this speed um so there are a couple of poems in this book that kind of play around with what you can achieve with wikipedia and whether that is um, interesting for making poems or not. And there's another poem um, which is called Epiphanies, which looks at everything that happened on a particular day in 1980 and weaves it into a poem. Um, and that obviously couldn't have been written without the internet, a poem like that. And this is another one because I just read... I, don't, I was I was sitting in Sydney in... Um, Darlinghurst or in a little bay down at the back of Potts Point um, sitting in a park and some people got out of their Range Rover with a Dachshund with a sausage dog and that kind of sparked off and I thought what are even sausage dogs what are they what do they do what are they for why do we have them why were they bred like that? So I just, you know, looked up sausage dogs on Wikipedia and I found all this stuff about sausage dogs. And then, because I was in a bit of a light-hearted mood, it turned into this poem. And I'm not quite sure where the apocalypse part of it came from. I think um, that was just the kind of mood that I got um, from, you know, whatever was in my mind that day. So this was like, here's all these great things I found out about sausage dogs. How can I put them in a poem and have it all make sense? It needs to have some urgency and some forward movement. So that's how it became an apocalypse. Anyway, that's, that's, that's my story today about this poem. So I'm sorry for giving you such a long introduction to it.
0: Fascinating. But
1: um, here goes the actual poem. Oh, and by the way, the 25th of July is um, a day which is significant in the history of the species. And I cannot now remember why, but it was very significant at the time when I wrote this poem. Um, And, you know, if you look up Sausage Dogs on Wikipedia, it will remind you what the 25th of July means for the breed of (laughs) Dachshunds. So here we go. Sausage Dog Apocalypse. It will happen on the 25th of July. The Dachshunds of Sydney's eastern suburbs will rise up on their hind legs and demand the range for over keys and a lifetime supply of badges. And the palm trees will flop down like wet spaghetti and their fronds will scatter as green dandelion clocks in an onslaught of clumsy child's school. Sorry, I'll say that again. Will scatter as green dandelion clocks in an onslaught of clumsy school spit spray. And the public toilet blocks will flip open their concrete roofs to reveal gun turrets emblazoned with the word tech and the baby-burns will throttle the parents who wear them while the babies open their suddenly lime-green eyes and their suddenly black lips and wall roll out the barrel in unison. And the innocent lawns in the parks will erupt, with ants the size of dachshunds, and I will remember that despite everything I still feel compelled to tell you your own significance, so I will scrawl the message on the last leaf of paper in my notebook before it bursts into flames. And every fisherman everywhere will simultaneously land a racing dachshund called Valdi or Fred, except the fattest ones will be called Obi, and I will entrust the note to a carrier albatross who will fly across the boiling seas to reach you, and the GPS satellites will howl down from orbit transformed into dachshund-shaped heat-seeking missiles, and you will open the note, read it, shrug your shoulders, and toss it unconcerned into the fruit bowl, because the writing will have morphed into the single word, liberty. And my mobile phone will start barking at me in German, and at that moment I will understand. No, really, I will finally understand. So we will step through the garden gate into a forest on Kepler 186F, which is a planet identical to this one, except there are no ducks. And that
0: was Stockholm. <laughs> it doesn't feel silly at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to look up the 25th of July, but um, it it, it feels incredibly profound. (laughs) That's probably just me.
1: (laughs) You know, um, we've seen lots of apocalyptic fiction and lots of apocalyptic film and stuff, and I'm kind of fascinated by this idea that however many times we imagine it, it's not going to be how we imagine, um, you know, the end of everything. So um, why not involve small dogs with long bodies <laughs> it's, it's as likely as any others no actually there are many scenarios that are more likely than that one but yeah um it's it's no less silly than giant alien plants taking over and, and making everybody go blind
0: yeah i i think it too in the context of the book and again in, in light of some of the other things i mean there for example um the persian poetry uh robbie uh, um Poems, which are you know again both, both very intense but also kind of you know, maybe mock historical.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, that was an interesting thing, and I suppose that, that if the book does have a lot of kind of high drama in it, and um, and this particular story is very, very, very dramatic, um, and it's the sort of thing. Uh, it's hard to believe that the story actually happened, um, the story about Rabia Balkhi's life, which I'll get to in a minute, but, um, but it almost doesn't matter because it's such a powerful story. And so I've found myself trying to approach it in different ways. And the, the one way that ended up in the book was um, a poem. I mean, I did a couple of translations of her actual poetry from 10th century northern Afghanistan, um, and um but i felt like i wanted to go slightly deeper into her consciousness at the moment of her becoming a legend and so i ended up doing another poem that was kind of in her voice um yeah and uh, i suppose it it needed to be it needed to sound a little bit like it might have been translated from another language um so that's why kind of the diction in the poem became the way that it was uh, and also, it, um, just to kind of back up a bit, because it's going to be confusing otherwise. Um, so Rabia Balkhi was, um, uh, as we said, a female poet active in the 10th century. She lived in Balkh in northern Afghanistan, which was then part of the Persian Empire. And uh, she had a brother who was, well, she was kind of, a very high-born family. Her brother was the governor of the province and she was unmarried and living under his protection in his house and she fell in love with one of his slaves. And as far as we know, nothing actually happened physically with this slave, but she did write some poems to him which were discovered and um, the brother found out about it and uh, became, you know, incensed um, for all sorts of... Quite obvious reasons, and so, but, but he did take some quite terrible action um, as a result, uh, and he got hold of both Rabia Balki, his sister, and the slave, whose name was Bakhtash. and he put he bricked Bakhtash up in a well, or and kind of restrained him in a well somehow, and um, then he got his sister and he bricked her up in a bathhouse, and but before he kind of put the last bricks in place. He got one of his surgeons to slit her wrists and then put the bricks um, to kind of seal the opening and so that she was inside and she basically bled to death. So, um, and then uh, Bakhtash somehow gets out of the well and goes and finds the brother governor and kills him and then goes to Rabia Baki's grave and commits suicide on top of the grave. So this kind of echoes of Romeo and Juliet in there as well. Mm. Um, so there's a pair of star-crossed lovers but one of them is a poet a woman poet so I suppose that was my way in to her um, and this story about a high-born woman falling in love with a slave and the terrible consequences for when a woman steps out of the kind of narrative that's been laid down for her um, I found a parallel a few centuries later in the biblical story of um, Potiphar's wife um, who is has a name, Zuleika, which I didn't know until I started researching this book. Um, So there's some kind of parallel poems about Zuleika's um, experience of falling in love with a slave, Joseph or Yusuf, um, and how that all turned out badly for everyone concerned as well, although at least nobody died. Um, So I suppose there's biblical language in here, there's kind of mock historic, mock translated um, language in here and there's actual translations from the Persian of Rabia Balki um, so yes mm. so can a whole you lot of mean, stuff going on
0: yes and we don't have a lot of time left but could I just get you to read Natalik? I will do
1: that so this is the poem um, Natalik means Persian calligraphy um, and this is a poem written in the voice of Rabia Balki it's me writing not her um, and this is written from the moment that she has been bricked up in a bathhouse and she realises she's going to die. Nostalgic. My baktash, to write these words for you, I should have the finest Kalam pen made from a strong and supple reed gathered in the south from the reed beds on the bitter sea. With that I could make the letters sing and dance. I have only my trembling finger and the handle of this comb, and the ink is not the finest blend of the masters. It is red, raw red, so much of it. Oh, what is blood in a bathroom? Only the story of all women. So much blood we see, month and month, year and year. Blood and insurance are our burdens. God gives them to us as gifts. We take joy in them for his sake. We offer the work of our bodies to his glory. A man... Would think himself a champion of battle To look upon so much blood in a life As the slightest village girl sees in one year Such rivers of it, too, in the bringing of a child Ah, Baktash, if we had made a child I will think of your voice Try to hear it over this roaring in my ears If you find these poems Copy them Make a safina Wear it in a pouch around your neck always Hanging down Just over, your blood-filled heart. And I should say, Safina is an oblong-bound book of poems, and that Rabia is supposed to have actually written her last poems with her own blood while she was in the bathroom.
0: Is there a sense, um, if I can pull out a sense overall, because I feel that with this poem and, and with almost all the poems, including the poems in the Goodbye Cruel section... The giving voice, that you know, getting this down is almost a kind of victory over death.
1: Well, that that would be one way of of looking at it. I, I do um, I do like a dramatic sorry a dramatic monologue. A lot of my poems in my last book, as well as in this book, are dramatic monologues in, in the voices of other people. And my training um, is as a historian. So um, in a sense, you know, there's just a part of me that really likes finding people who can't tell their own stories anymore and trying to maybe breathe new life um, into those stories. And that includes people who have died recently by their own hand as well as people who've died very, very, very long time ago. Um, um, Yeah, so that, that could just be part of, you know, what attracts me as, a creative worker is, is that, that work of voicing and you know it's it's very difficult territory and it's getting more difficult and um you know when you're going to try and voice somebody you have to be very careful in thinking about whether you are in any way involved in activity that might have silenced them at some point mm. and therefore it's really not appropriate for you to start voicing them at this point um And I thought long and hard about that, particularly with Rabia Balki, and I thought really the Persian Empire um, and the British Empire, which is the imperial structure that I'm involved in by virtue of being born a white Australian, have not really had a lot... um, Yeah, there's there's not a lot of kind of um, aspects of the Persian Empire and the British Empire's relationship that would cause it to be really, really not okay for me to try and um, voice a 10th century Persian woman poet. So so I did. it, But I was aware that I was pushing up against a line. And that line is also there in, in um, the case of people who've, um, who've taken their own lives. But in that section of the book, um, most of them were fictional um, people, so to speak. And in, and in one poem, um, when I kind of there's a, the voice of a suicide speaking um from the forest of suicides you know someone who's woken up as a tree in that forest and trying to work out what's going on that's really not anyone except i suppose i was trying to imagine for myself what it would be like if i had committed suicide and woken up as a tree so that voice in that poem is really closest to me or much closer to me than anybody else that it could possibly have been um, so yeah i I just wanted to make clear that I know it's not an unambiguously easy um, or worthwhile activity to go around voicing other people, um, but it's something that I think, when approached sensitively and, and with awareness of what you're doing, um, can result in effective poems sometimes.
0: Mm, absolutely, in this case. Um, so, thank you. Melinda, thank I think we're, we're unfortunately out of time. I think we could go on for a couple more hours. Um, and we will have to do this again, uh, but um, tell listeners who want to find out more and get hold of the
1: book um, and
0: your other books, where best to find you. Would it be at your blog?
1: Um, oh, that's very kind of you to allow me a little plug. Um, so the books themselves are uh, for sale in independent bookshops. You can go to an independent bookshop and say, give me Melinda Smith's book, please, um, that would be helpful to the bookshop and helpful to me. But you can also go to Pitt Street Poetry website and all Pitt Street Poetry books are for sale at their website, including the one that we've just been talking about, Goodbye Cruel, and my previous book, the one with the gold sticker on the cover, which is called Drag Down to Unlock or Place an Emergency Call. Um, and I do have a blog, which is kind of a bit sadly neglected these days. I've do most of my activity on my Facebook author page so you can find me as Melinda Smith Poet on Facebook or you can follow me on Twitter at Melinda L Smith um, if you're at all interested
0: (laughs) Perfect Thank (laughs) (laughs) you so much for your time today Melinda and um, I'm sure we'll talk again Thank you so much Magdalene it was was a
1: pleasure to be and privilege to be a part of the podcast today
0: Thanks. Bye for now.